The Local Youth Worker is a podcast brought to you by Reformed Youth Ministries. Since 1972, RYM has sought to reach and equip youth for Christ. And this podcast seeks to reach and equip those parents and youth workers who share that same desire. For more information on our student conferences, youth leader training, or resources, visit rym.org. Hey everyone, welcome to The Local Youth Worker, a podcast brought to you by Reformed Youth Ministries. I'm your host, John Parrott. Uh, This is episode 376, and I'm here with Linda Oliver. Linda, how's it going? Going well, John. All right, we um, will have Julie Lowe coming on a little bit later uh, to talk about her newest book, uh, Safeguards, and I'll give some more information on that. And uh, Brian Habig will be joining us once again to talk about insecurities of life and ministry. Uh, But now I'm here with Linda and... um, Uh, Something we did a few weeks ago uh, was talk about travel tips and youth ministry. And so, Linda, I'd love to hear if you have any travel tips on your years of youth ministry, any kind of pro tips there. Yeah, so something I started years ago um, when I started being kind of the head honcho for some trips is, I don't even know what to call this, but I, I will make this like master document that I use throughout the whole trip. Um, where I dump everything that I need to do and remember um, down to the details of like, here's the time I need to arrive and unlock things or like 15 minutes after we leave, I'm going to tell the kids this while we're on the bus. And then like when we arrive at the lunch stop, these are our options and these are the instructions I need to give them. Like don't bring back um like drinks that don't have a screw top on them and stuff like that. It has like every detail that I need for the entire trip in one document so that I don't have to worry about remembering those things during the trip. And it's like, here's the game I'm going to run and here are the rules for it, whatever. And then if anything comes up like during the trip that I'm like, oh, I need to tell students this later. I just find the next time like the that's going to need to happen. And I'm like, okay, here's another note out to the side that like also tell students this, um, that has been incredibly helpful to me so that I can be present with students instead of as we're driving somewhere thinking like, okay, so what were the things that I should tell the students once we get there? So that mass chaos doesn't ensue. (laughs) And so that we don't like arrive somewhere and I'm like, oh, I I forgot to tell you to bring socks for bowling and then no one can wear bowling shoes or whatever it is. Um, I make those for every trip that we go on and it's super helpful. That is awesome. Um, (laughs) because yeah, I mean, there's so much there, but, but being, you know, present with the students, um, I mean, so often, you know, I would go on a trip with students and I mean, one of my prayers would be like, Lord, help me enjoy the students from the standpoint of just like being in the trip and not just thinking of all the things that have to happen, you know, the next hour or whatever. And so something like this is, is awesome. And, and you kind of spoke to it, like adding a note. How, how often are you, you modifying that from trip to trip? Do you have a system where you're just kind of jotting some things down um, and then you, you get back home and kind of post trip, you're, you're modifying that document to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So it's like during the trip, if something comes up, I can jot something down in pencil. Um, and then often throughout the trip, I'm noticing like, oh, it would have been better if we had done this and I might write myself a note. But I always, after every retreat trip, whatever, have some time when I'm walking through an evaluation and I usually get some feedback even from the volunteer leaders um, so that I can go back and in that document, I'll make notes to myself in red so that the next year when I basically take that document and duplicate it, I can work in that feedback that's all in red and go, okay, so I'm going to adjust the time of this, or we're not going to stop there for lunch, or I'm going to remember to tell the kids this here, or my leaders pointed out to me that I completely neglected this and I need to add in some times to do this for the students or for the leaders or whatever. Um, So yeah, I've sort of got a, a system where I'm modifying it throughout the trip, like in after the trip in preparation for next year. Cause like definitely do the evaluation right after the trip. Cause if you think like, Oh, one year, like, (laughs) like down the road, I'll remember that this didn't go well. 
like, no, you're not going to yeah. remember it that well. You'd be like, I kind of feel like something wasn't quite right, but I don't remember what it was. You'll remember yeah. it right afterwards, though. Yeah, very, very true. Now, if ever there was a pro tip, I mean, this is a pro tip. Um, this is some awesome advice. Um, so, yeah, those listening, take this idea, use it. Hopefully it'll be helpful for your next trip. Um, we're about to get to um, our interview with uh, Brian Habig as we continue talking to him about insecurities of life and ministry. Uh, before we get there, I did want to talk about an exciting offer uh, that we have. Um, RYM has partnered with uh, Crossway Books uh, to offer a discount to our listeners. If you go to crossway.org slash RYM40, uh, you can get 40% off um, uh, uh, selected titles that are kind of in youth and, and family ministry. And there's free shipping as well if you spend over $30. Um, so be sure to visit. Um, let me make sure I get it right. Go back at crossway.org slash RYM40 uh, to get 40% off these selected titles. I, I think off the top of my head, it's a little over 50 books or so. Um, so we're grateful to Crossway for partnering with us to do that. And I mean, 40% is very significant. Um, so this is a limited time offer. I know we'll be running it over the next month or so. Um, so be sure to, to check that out. Um, for now, here is our interview with Brian Habig. All right, everybody, we are back uh, with Brian Habig and, and Kurt Cooper. Uh, we are talking about uh, fears of a minister. Um, something I thought uh, that, you know, this might could kind of get into some of those fears and insecurities that we uh, deal with. I heard Paul David Tripp, I think it was Paul David Tripp, share this uh, story in, in one of his books that one time he preached a sermon. And after the sermon, um, it might have been a ruling elder in the church, something like that. So they came up and they critiqued him pretty heavily for what he just said. And after that Sunday, <laughs> Paul Tripp said he started to write that sermon for that individual. And he said that ruling elder, if it was a ruling elder, you know, his head became the biggest head in the congregation as he would just look out. And he just said he he began thinking, okay, this sermon point's going to get him. This point is going to get him. Um, and again, I think that was Paul Tripp who shared this. But let's maybe talk about what that is. Uh, Brian, have you experienced something like that uh, as you preach? I know this is kind of dipping into some vulnerability, but we'd love for you to just kind of react to that story and thoughts on that story. Sure. Well, I resonate with it big time. And, and the, the, the two thoughts that come to mind are, especially early on, when I was just starting out at downtown Presbyterian, because it, it's not a it's not a scratch church plant. And if you don't know, I mean that, that's just kind of jargony. But meaning, it's I, I did not move to Greenville and just start downtown Presbyterian from scratch. So I'm the, you know, you could say the founding pastor or the organizing pastor. But there was a core group that really got the wheels in motion and approached the Presbytery and and actually had started worship about a year before I got here. So I didn't just come into my cape and, and and start something, but but I was the founding pastor and and was exercising leadership in this thing that's trying to become a church. And man, so when when we're still a church plant, there's, I mean, like at one point no staff, and then I have one other staff, uh, no session, no deacons, no building. I mean, just time after time I'd meet somebody and they'd say, what do you do? Well, I'm a pastor. Oh, really? Where do you pastor? Downtown Prez. Wait, is that First Prez? There's a historic, you know, like 1830s church here, First Prez, Greenville. Uh, no, it's actually a different church. Uh, well, I've never heard of it and just feels so small. And I just had that conversation over and over and over. And so I, I remember that feeling of, I mean, I remember one night feeling like I had an elephant standing on my chest, like, almost the feeling that right now somewhere there's a group of downtown press people meeting and they're discussing whether they should even keep me or not. And it, it, it was irrational and it wasn't based on any incident. It was just fear of the unknown, the uncertainty of how will this turn out? There's no safety net. If it doesn't make it, will we make it? Will we become a church? That's more early on, and I mean, that's not to say I've never been touched by it since, but I mean, it was really loud when we're starting out, and there's not much infrastructure as a, as a church. Uh, but, um, but the, well, you're going to have to edit this out while I'm thinking of the other one. No, you're good. You're <laughs> well, good. I was going to, 
while you're thinking about it, Brian, mm-hmm. that reminds me of what you said at the T4G breakout session about Anne Lamott. Uh, the thing uh, that she wrote where all your friends have gotten together and we've, you know, they're like, you feel oh, like that there's poem. This, yeah. Yeah. That poem. Yes. Yeah. And I was going to, I was just going to ask like that. I think you described it as being found out or being uh, outed as an, I don't know if we call it an imposter, but just being, you know, conspiracy, not conspiracy theory that has like bad, but it's like a mini conspiracy theory, I guess, like that everything's kind of working against you or that people are, um, that people are kind of like meeting about you. Uh, And I, I, like, again, I'm not trying to like psychoanalyze. I just want to know, like, how, when that's happening, when you're going through that, when you feel like the elephant's on your chest and you're worried about that, looking back at it now, do you feel like a lot of it was because, do you, what, do you feel some of it was because you were like worried or, or, or lacking in, in trust? Uh, I'm not trying to project these things. I'm just asking. Um, or do you feel some of it was like self absorption or do you feel like some of it was like, uncertainty like what what is what's happening there um Mm. if you can look back it's hard to say and that's i mean i think you're asking just the right question i think it was a combination i think that that quite a bit of it was my own perfectionism and it took me years to realize that that i was sort of walking around with a mantra especially when i walked into the pulpit and the mantra was i must do well Mm. And I feel like by God's grace, after several years, my mantra changed to, I'm going to tell you the best news you've ever heard, whether you listen or not. Mm-hmm. And that, that is a much more life-giving mantra. If anyone listening, I'm using mantra, you know, I'm just being uh, facetious, sure. but, but uh, that's a more life-giving mantra than I must do well. I must do well is crushing after mm. a while. But I would, I'd also say that, you know, we, we're supernatural in our beliefs, and there is such a thing as the kingdom of darkness, and I think that some of it was satanic. Mm-hmm. I don't think uh, the kingdom of darkness, Satan, want churches where the gospel is proclaimed, uh, don't want new churches started. I, I haven't known one church planner that really proclaims the gospel that hasn't met with just both you know, kind of like just as I am the old the old gospel song. You know, fears within and fears without. They've met they've met with both of them. So I think some it's, some of it was what Brian brought to the table, and some of it was I would call satanic. Mm-hmm. I will say yeah, this: it, it was not. I, I want to be clear about this. It was not because I was being roughhoused by mm-hmm. our core group or this faction of mean people. I did not have that. So I would say it's the other two things, at least. You, have, have, have you ever found, have you ever found in your ministry though, that has there ever been a situation where you weren't being roughhoused, but you interpreted it as being roughhoused? Cause I bet there are a lot of youth ministers and a lot of ministers in general of any stripe who, you know, when they have to deal with criticism, I was thinking about what you said last week, um, when they have to deal with criticism with that, with that pastor who, uh, Paul David Tripp, I guess this is John was telling the story last week about, you know, preaching the sermon for that guy that, you know, for some reason, um, they're so, they feel such the pressure to do well that any, you know, correction becomes uh, just destructive. Yeah. Sure. yeah. Oh, well, I mean, generically, I would say that sometimes an email that, that, you know, email is a flat medium, an email that doesn't really have a tone to it. I'll hear it with a tone that the sender was not using. I mean, I think we've all done that. That's the danger of a flat oh, yeah. medium. But I, mean, I can think of an incident when we were still a church plant. We were trying to work on, you know, getting our first building. And there was a man on the, on the committee in our church. And, and let, me, let, me, let me set this up. Okay, so I'm pretty, physically, I'm pretty, you know, I'm, I'm not big. And I didn't get bullied a lot growing up, but as you get older, you learn the things that punch your buttons or your counselor might say your triggers. And if I feel like I'm getting bullied or I see somebody bullied, I just, man, I just see red. And I'm not saying it's good anger. I'm just saying I I typically see red. And so during this meeting, uh, I was trying to chime in about something. And this, this man on the committee was sitting beside me, an older man. 
and he he put his hand he, he didn't like touch me in any way but he kind of put his hand like don't talk because I'm about to say something and it, it like in the grand scheme of things I don't think he meant it to uh, he was just kind of <laughs> shucking and jiving you're like we're having a lively discussion it flew all over me I fixated on it I got together with him one-on-one -on -one. and in hindsight I don't think I was disrespectful but I just was too dialed up and it was I didn't I didn't have to be that dialed up it just mm. was my own anger and feeling like you know you should have been being quiet and listening to me I don't need to be quiet and mm -hmm. listen to you so yeah. And it, I love yeah, and so there's there's yeah some some paranoia I think that we all you know experience as as ministers um something that I mean and we did excommunicate him but I felt bad about it <laughs> sure hey, uh, right, that, that's, John, what you, that's what you need to do John um, before we move so, on before we move on I just want to say I love that for youth ministers here because how many youth ministers who are listening to this have been teaching high school or junior high students and the high school or junior high student is not necessarily, maybe they are, but they're not necessarily trying to act disrespectful in some way, but it, you know, they've had, the ministers had a bad day. There's, you know, there's all kinds of things that have been going on and then just, they do one little thing and you just, it just kills you. Right. And uh, anyway, it's just interesting to hear someone talk about a building committee that could have just as easily happened in a junior high boys Bible study as sure. it happened in. Uh, yeah. Anyway, sure. sorry, John. Yeah, no, no. And, and I think, I mean, there's a story that's, kind of re related to, to some of this. Um, I can remember one of my children was acting up during a Sunday morning service. I had to deal with it during the service, you know, get up, take my child out, come back into the the sanctuary. And a wife of a ruling elder came up to me at the end of the service. And she was very kind and was being very encouraging, um, but just made the comment. And again, she was trying to be encouraging. She just was applauding me for how I dealt with it and then said, you know, John, you're the youth pastor of this church and everyone's watching how you parent. Mm. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, that's terrifying. Um, it's helpful to kind of be aware of that and to think, okay, wow, yeah, there's a sense in which we, uh, anyone and the pastor, it's an example to some degree. But I remember just thinking, okay, wow, now everyone's watching me. Um how do you both deal with that? How do you process that? I mean, there, there's a sense in which, you know, every congregant is our boss because they pay our salary, right? <laughs> in a sense, through tithing. Um, and we answer to everyone. Um, so how do you all process that, think about that, deal with that? Brian, you want to jump in? Mm. <laughs> there's a lot there. Yeah, thanks, John. <laughs> no, it, it, it's hard. I, I sort of asked Wilson Benton that same question when I was in seminary. So for, for those listening who don't know him, Wilson Benton, just a well-known pastor in the PCA, and at that time was pastor of Kirk of the Hills, senior pastor of Kirk of the Hills in St. Louis. And I was in seminary, and uh, I was interning at the Kirk, and, and that's where I worshiped. And uh, Wilson several times had the interns over, just really opened up his home and let us just fire questions and pick his brain. You know, very experienced pastor and just such a such a sharp mind. Um, if, if the listeners don't know him but but have have uh, heard Paige Brown, uh, Wilson Benton is Paige's father. So I remember asking him that, like, how, how do you not be how how do you be a sinner with your congregation and yet not just blow their minds with particularity and you know he kind of he just gave a, a general answer of from time to from time to time when you're teaching or preaching it's appropriate to say look we all have our secrets you know you have yours and i have mine and you're acknowledging that it's there but you don't necessarily have to verbalize your secret to the to the congregation so i think I'm, now, I'm probably going to get into some more specifics than that, maybe not about secrets, but about failures or or, um, or just failures or uh, mistakes, sin, whatever. But to do it wisely where it just doesn't just blow their heads off that like I, I can't unhear that now, and now I struggle to listen to you preach or teach or pray. And I... And I'll, I'll just say this, John, and I may be I may be on the wrong side of the equation on this, but 
it, 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 sometimes people really, really well-meaning will say to you, hey, look, I just, I want you to know that we can be friends. I know you're my pastor, but I want you to know you can let your hair down. You, you know, you're a person too. You're a human being. You're a sinner. You make mistakes. I just like, I want you to know that you can be yourself. And that is awesome that they're offering that. And I'm telling you that there is a line that if a pastor crosses it, ethically, verbally, However, they can't unhear it. They can't unremember it. And, uh, and it will affect you being their pastor. And that, man, I, and it's just one of those deals where there's no law to answer the do's and don'ts of it. You have to exercise biblical wisdom. Mm. But, I, I mean, you know, in the PCA, um, the denomination that, that we serve, uh, teaching elders, ministers, we take vows to have exemplary piety. Mm. And so on the one hand, I, like John, with your parenting, no, I don't want you living in a pressure cooker. I don't want to live in a pressure cooker. And we are setting an example mm. every day. Uh, <laughs> I was just going to say, an elder at the at Lawndale Press, where I served before I was here at Trinity, said, Kurt, you know, we pay you to be good, but you know, I'm just an elder. I'm just a ruling elder. I'm good for nothing, <laughs> which I always thought was pretty clever. It's clever, but, but there is a there is a uh, there is a feeling. Talk about fears. I think Brian, what you're tapping into is this feeling of like there is no safety net for me. Um, the safety, you know, it, it, it can feel like that in the ministry uh, because uh, I'm I'm not looking to. Uh, upset my life in any way but you know i would tell people the difference between a minister and a lawyer or the minister and accountant is that if a minister has a moral i mean if a lawyer and accountant has a moral failing they still go back the next day and become and they practice law or they do debits and credits but if a minister has a moral failing he's lots of times like he's selling insurance or he's like switching careers like that's and that kind of pressure cooker i don't know if that's I don't know what element of that is good and appropriate and right. And what element element of it actually um, maybe mitigates against grace because you don't feel that, you know, that grace in your life. It's kind of a, and, you know, you were talking about Wilson Benton being vulnerable. I think one of the worst ways you handle that, or I've heard people do it and I've probably been guilty of this too. I can't think of an example at the top of my head, but I bet I have is that oftentimes the way you deal with that is by doing fake vulnerability. Right. Which fake, yeah. So fake vulnerability is like, y'all, I speed and on the highway. Well, like no one cares. Yeah. Like that, that's not confession. Or, I mean, even real <laughs> vulnerability, but you're doing it just for the sake of manipulation. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, just to try to win over the audience. But Brian, yeah. I think you were, you're about to say something. Uh, well, I, I just was going to, this maybe is like subset you know, Roman numeral 5.L or whatever under what Kurt just said. But typically, as a minister, when I share, a, how would you put it? When I share an opinion that is really unnecessary, I end up regretting it. <laughs> and I feel like I have suppressed so many opinions with y'all. Mm. This is like, you know, I, I didn't share with you 118 prior ones, but I'm just going to pop if I don't get to say this one. And typically it is just a bad idea. Hmm. And I don't mean, we're not talking about opinion of a, you know, like movie or restaurant or something. I mean, like political, just uh, hmm. something more deeply cultural and, ooh, and, and what you feel, what you can feel in that moment is, you are at your best when you love them and serve them and give them the gospel. And you don't have to have a proof text for everything, but you're at your best when you give them a thus saith the Lord, not like your take on something, especially, mm. especially if you're irritated. I just have, I've, I've dropped the ball more than once on that. Hmm. That's good. Yeah. Go ahead, Kurt. No, I think I'm. We're probably going to wind this one up. Well, so, final, a final word. You can get it, and we'll shut it down. No, this wasn't a final word. It was, it was probably going to be a can of worms. But I was just going to ask Brian: Do you find yourself 
being someone who is it's easy for you to just agree or to be agreeable even when you disagree or do you find yourself being a contrarian who has to like really tamp that down when it comes to sharing opinions or um you know i don't want to call it church politics i sometimes i think politics gets a and i'm even talking about like republicans and democrats now but people will say i'm not political and i'd be like well then you're dead because all yeah. things are political at all times so that's ridiculous but um but sometimes just, being political is just being wise yeah, yeah yeah so i just wondered like just personally do you find yourself being it's kind of easy for you to agree and kind of set aside or are you the kind of person who maybe you're you're you know you got you're having to tamp that down a lot right does that make sense it does well i'm learning i mean i hope i'm learning i don't want to agree with something that i don't I don't want to give the motions of agreeing when I don't agree and mm. that's treacherous. So if, if I have a high level of trust with someone and we have some deep relational capital, I might get into it a little bit more one-on-one. -on -one. If, if I, if I know that this person's trustworthy, even then I probably qualify, <laughs> qualify it to death, but you know, sometimes I'll just listen and receive and not comment on it. And, and I feel like a lesson I'm having to learn all the time. I, I even talk to my wife and, and children about this is that you don't have to answer every single question that's asked of you. <laughs> that's really good. Hey, it is. Hey, as a, as a follow-up because well, we, we've got to shut it down. No, John, I'm refusing. Yeah. <laughs> I do have to ask, is there someone or a group of people that you can like be you know, completely, un I don't want to say unhinged, not like you're like, you know, going wild, but you know, is there someone that you can just, you know, that you, that is like that? And, and how have you developed that if you have? There's one, I married her. Ah, okay. <laughs> awesome answer. That's good. Yeah. All right. We might pick up here more next week. All right. That, that was Brian Habig. Um, now we're about to have Julie Lowe joining us uh, to talk about her newest book, uh, Safeguards, uh, Shielding Our Homes and Equipping Our Kids. Uh, Julie has been on the podcast before. Uh, she is a faculty member at CCEF. Uh, she has over 20 years of counseling experience. She's written multiple books. Um, her and her husband, Greg, have six children and they serve as foster and adoptive parents. Julie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you. Um, Linda, um, thank you for also being a part of the podcast today. Yeah, glad to be here. Um, Julie, we're going to be talking about your new book, and really at the, at the time of this recording, um, it's forthcoming. I, I believe October, let me see, I had it here, October 3rd. 3rd I think, yeah. Right, October yeah. 3rd. Um, and the, the title of the book, Safeguards, Shielding Our Homes and Equipping Our Kids. Uh, and Julie, that, that's often where I, I like to start uh, when someone's uh, releasing a book is the the title. And I know that's something that you kind of discuss in, in the book as well. But um, safeguards, why, why the title safeguards? And then maybe just kind of give us an overview of what you hope to cover in the book. Yeah, actually, I love starting there because it does give a picture of of what I hope to accomplish in the book. And when you think of safeguards, you think protective measures to put in place. And protective measures doesn't ensure the lack of hard things happening in our lives, but what it does is it, it shields us. Um, and so shielding our homes and equipping our kids, we went back and forth about subtitles and what, what am I really trying to, uh, trying to do? And shielding our homes means I want, I want our home to be a protective place. I want our kids to grow up in, uh, in a safe way, as safe as possible. Um, and part of doing that is really equipping them. It's equipping them to go out into a precarious fallen world and know how to live where the temptation is to live in fear and just um, shelter our children. And I don't want to shelter kids. I want to mm -hmm. safeguard them. I want to equip them to go into the world. Um, and that means really talking about all the hard things that we'd rather just avoid or keep out of their lives. Mm 
Yeah, no, we were yeah, all talking a little bit pre-recording. Um, uh, I mean, this is one of those discussions. In many ways, we, we don't want to have it. Um, it's one of those books that in some ways, I mean, we, we wish it didn't have to exist, but we know um, living on this side of Genesis 3, um, there are some tough realities um, out there. And so just, so I was, again, sharing this pre-recording, but just wanting to say, uh, you know, Julie, thank you for writing this book. I mean, this is a book that I think, just falls in the category of, you know, an important book, not that other books are, are not important, but one of those vital books um, that I think every uh, pastor needs to own, every family needs to have, um, because there, there's so much, uh, yeah, so much content that you, you cover. Um, and, and just kind of how you, you opened this to, I know you, you have some foundations at the beginning of your book that you talk about that are that are important. I mean, one is the fact that we live in a fallen world. One is uh, teaching children to kind of discern good from evil. And then three, that our ultimate safety is in the hands of the Lord. Um, but, but I'd love to kind of talk there. Um, I mean, in some ways, this is a big question I'm asking, and the whole book kind of <laughs> deals with that. But walk us through how, how do we talk uh, with our children in age-appropriate ways about the the real evils in this world, without just you know making our children terrified um, of uh, what's out there. Again, I know that's a big question, and you spend a book you know explaining that, and you talk in you know detail about talking to teenagers as well as elementary school children. Um, just kind of let's let's begin there. Yeah, well, you're you're saying a lot of key things, and that is how to talk in developmentally appropriate ways. So I've had this conversation when when I talk about teaching kids about sex or gender or bullying. That obviously you're you're not going to you're going to do it in ways that are developmentally appropriate. Um, so you start with elementary kids, and it's it's teaching them. Uh, who are their safe people? It's teaching them uh, good from evil, right from wrong. What's what's appropriate ways of showing affection? What aren't appropriate ways? Because the more you teach that, the more they'll know when somebody makes them uncomfortable, right? And then as they get older, we're taking the exact same principles, but we're building on them, and we're talking about harder topics like date rape and things that happen in college. So you go from younger kids to who are safe people to um, how to evaluate behavior to good touch or bad touch, which actually I don't even like that language, but uh, what makes people comfortable or uncomfortable, right? Um, you move from that to, as they get older, entering into bullying and sexting and pornography. Uh, and so as kids grow, when as parents were demonstrating, no topic is off limits. Every topic is safe to talk about, and we have something to say about it, and God has something to say about it, and we're not embarrassed to talk about it. We're modeling to our kids that we are people they can go to in need, and they know mom and dad are going to respond well. They, they've heard us role play. They've heard us practice, which is really a key principle in the book, right? You've got to role play. You can't just throw out principles and ideas and then expect them to remember them. Yeah, um, I thought that that was a really helpful point in the book to do the kind of role playing and giving them examples and whatnot. And, um, you know, I, I think about how with this podcast, we reach parents and we also reach youth workers, um, you know, reading a lot of it. I was like, man, this is such a good um, resource for parents. And I wonder if you've envisioned ways that like youth workers could also use it? Like, would you see this primarily as a resource that youth workers could use to equip parents or that we would also use it to talk with the students ourselves? Oh, I would love to see. Yeah, I would love to see youth workers use the same principle because, right, it's principle Mm -hmm. driven that everyday talk helping kids role play, youth leaders saying, what do you guys do when somebody approaches you in school uh, with pot? What do you do when somebody encourages you to join in on some really crass prank or some risky behaviors? That kind of role playing, that practicing gives kids discernment. And if we raise our kids in safe environments, then we assume they'll never they'll never need to practice these things. And so when they are inadvertently exposed to them, they're not used to it, they're caught off guard. I mean, that's true of grown adults. If I'm in a parking garage and somebody approaches me 
or uh, you know, the classic example is going into a, a dark parking lot or an elevator with somebody who makes you uncomfortable. We freeze in moments of discomfort rather than saying, well, what can I do in this situation? Mm-hmm. And so the more we help young people think about it, the more equipped they will be in moments they least expect it. Uh, so I love the, the idea of every, everybody who's discipling and mentoring kids to know how to help kids think better. We want, we want to raise discerning kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and Julie, I know, uh, I don't know if we'd say there are two extremes maybe of, of parents out there. Um, I know you talk about the parents that can, can worry a little bit as you uh, start to talk about these issues, but then parents on the other end of the spectrum that are just kind of want to live in denial and just kind of, you know, ignorance is bliss and, and not talk about it. Maybe talk to both of those parents, um, kind of give some counsel to those, I mean, parents who are listening and maybe again, fall towards maybe one of those ends of the spectrum a little bit. Yeah, worrying cripples us. And it's the exact opposite of equipping children. By teaching kids to worry, by me worrying, two things happen to my children. Either I instill in them the behavior of worrying and they believe life is unsafe. I've actually handicapped them. I've done the same damage I'm seeking to to protect them from by by making them fearful worriers. or they're dismissing me as irrelevant. And how many times have we thought that about our, our mothers or our fathers growing up? Oh, my mom's such a worrier, such a worrywart. Those things will never happen. And so what I've done is I've lost credibility with my kids. So worrying for all those reasons is not helpful. Um, and neither is living in denial, right? Because what that does is it means our kids go into the world and into these situations without any influence, without any guidance, without any preparation. Um, and Christian homes, I think, are really good about living in denial. We believe these things don't happen and are therefore uh, they won't happen to our kids. And our kids know right from wrong. They know the right thing to do. And we assume that they have the knowledge we do as adults. Uh, and so denial doesn't prepare kids either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like that example of like the dismissing um, adults as like they worry too much or whatever. Cause I, I know I've been in settings where, you know, I, for instance, realized that a student um, had their Instagram profile set to public or were accepting people, people's like follow requests that they had no idea who it was. And I was Mm -hmm. just trying to invite them to think more about that. And sometimes you can get the responses like, Oh, well you sound like my mother, like, and Mm -hmm. you know, what what input might you have on like how can we communicate it in a way that maybe the kids won't just roll their eyes and say like you sound like my mother yeah i actually do try to look for real life uh examples with my kids so i've i've got five and they i hear those things all the time and they will joke with me because of stranger danger and they've grown up learning strangers are not dangerous, dangerous people are dangerous. And you need to be concerned. You need to evaluate people, not just uh, people's character, but their behavior. So anyway, you know, and they'll roll their eyes or they'll say stranger danger, mom, just to to get ruffle my feathers. Um, And so what I do is I'll, I'll laugh along with them, but I'll also give examples. And sometimes they see things more than we do on the news and social media and using those examples to say, guys, that was somebody that person knew, or that was an example of this principle I've been showing you. And here's a real life example unfolding before you. Maybe I'm not so crazy after all. Um, and so being able to give them examples of it happening. And unfortunately, they're all around us. And kids are exposed to media like never before. So it's not that I am instilling again fear in them. Rather, I'm equipping them to see examples of this, and they bring their own examples now. Right? How many teenagers are going into youth ministry saying, "Guess what happened to my friend?" or "Guess what I heard happened to so and so this weekend?" Yeah, and that, let's dig into uh, maybe evaluating people a little bit more. I know you have a section. Uh, where you, you talk about, you know, identifying a safe person versus an unsafe person. And I mean, you, you, you know, share in there that oftentimes we may think, okay, some uh, kind of creepy type stranger is going to be the stereotypical child molester, when in fact, it's actually more often someone that we know, and someone that we trust. And so give it give us some thoughts on that. How do we evaluate safe from unsafe? Yeah, well, one of 
one of the crucial, I think, key principles is evaluate behavior and words, not character. We are notoriously bad at evaluating character and deceptive people are notoriously good at looking like they have good character, right? So how do we become wise and discerning? We evaluate behavior, not character. So if I look at what somebody says and does, I look at what they're asking me to say or do, I'm evaluating good from evil. And that's that's really what's going on. My, my kids were notorious for saying, well, what if we don't know what the person's asking me is good or bad? And I love those kind of questions because that goes right back into role playing and practice. And I'll say, well, give me an example of something you might not know. And they'll say, well, what if an adult tells me to go somewhere with them and I don't know if you'd want me to or not? Great example. Well, evaluate that. I'm not sure if I should do it. I'm going to go find another adult to talk about. So you can see that if I didn't role play, if I didn't practice, if I didn't give them permission to actually debate with me and try to stump me on things, um, they actually would be less equipped. And so inviting that kind of conversation, inviting them to be discerning people. And I love that biblical language. We throw out intuition, mother's intuition, spidey senses, things like mm -hmm. that. And what I try to debunk is I really just think it's perception and discernment. And so that goes to Hebrews 5.14 that I used in the book where it talks about um, the mature have their powers of discernment that come from constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And that really breaks down the heart of what we're trying to accomplish with young people. The more we teach them to discern good from evil with constant practice, the wiser and safer our kids will be. That safety is really a fruit of growing to know how God created life to be lived. And it's not just safety from other people, it's actually safety from our own hearts, or our own tendencies as well. Um, yeah, so, so I love that this book um, goes into a lot of specific topics that teens are going to like come across, right? So like speak to, I'll pick like sexting, right? Like how do we prepare students for how to respond when they receive a sex that they didn't ask for. Yeah, well, I've heard of this great book called Not If, But When, <laughs> written by a friend of ours. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> we totally it, didn't set her up for this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it is saying, you know, and here's a parental flaw, right? My kids will never be a participate in this. They know better. Um, and when I take that mentality, what I do is I leave them ill-equipped to say, yeah, I would hope that they wouldn't desire to be a part of it, but it is going to pursue them. And that's the understanding that uh, harm pursues our young people, um, that culture pursues our young people. So am I equipping them for what may pursue them, may, what may end up on their devices or in their lap and how to respond to it? So sexting is a great example of saying, you might have somebody ask you for uh, an, a picture of yourself naked and you might have someone send one to you? What should you do? What would you do if you got one? Uh, what can you do? What should you do? And walking alongside kids and, you know, even preparing, we've had very frank conversations with our sons. You get a picture like that and you leave it on your phone. You're now carrying child pornography. You send it to somebody else. You now have committed a crime. You need to understand the gravity of that. Of course, we care about the morality of it too, but really even helping young people understand the nature of it. And Nobody likes having those hard conversations, but then we live our, leave our kids all prepared to know what to do. And they also think mom and dad don't have anything to say about it. Hmm. Yeah, and, and I've got to follow up, but I don't know how to voice the question, but but it's it's a theme that you've definitely uh, bring up in your, your book. And I mean, you just said it, I mean, harm is pursuing our children. Um, I think you had something about just online predators that there was a stat that there's, you know, 500,000 active online predators each day that, uh, somewhere else you said, just, you know, um, people are coming after our children as they're, they're getting online. And so I'd love for you to maybe to talk about that. And then just, I mean, obviously this all ties into social media and technology and just how that's changed this entire conversation. I know there's a lot there, but just <laughs> react to, to whatever you feel like. Yeah. Um, I, there's an example I give in the book, and maybe I'll start with that and then go back to the technology. I give an example of actually our, our college-age daughter who, very safe, good head on her shoulders, um, 
And she was taking a break from working at a local daycare center, broad daylight, having her lunch break, went to a local Dunkin' Donuts and sat in the parking lot. You know, it was probably was texting on her phone and eating something. And uh, when her break was over, she went to pull out of the parking lot and saw an older gentleman approaching her. So her window was, was partly rolled down. She assumed maybe she had a flat tire or something. And as he approached her, he threw something into the car on her lap and said, I've been watching you for a while. You have really nice eyes. Um, and she felt really awkward and just pulled away and left. And when she looked down, he had thrown a $50 bill in her lap. Hmm. Now, here it is, middle of the day, safe as could be in a public place. And something really inappropriate happened to her. Now, was she ever in real danger? Probably not. But actually, as the day went on and she thought about it more, it upset her more and more, realizing what had happened. Because um, in the moment, she didn't know how to make sense out of it. And that is a great example of here is a, a 19, 20-year-old girl who has parents who have trained her whole life for uncomfortable, awkward situations that ever once think to bring up, by the way, someday you could be in a parking lot where a strange man approaches you and throws money in your lap and makes you feel really uncomfortable. I can't possibly come up with every scenario that exists out there. However, what I can do is I can give her the skills to say that was wrong. There was something really inappropriate there. I need to go tell somebody. And as she had time to reflect back what had unfolded, that's exactly what she did. She, she told some adults, she called me, she actually called the police and said, is there anything I can do about this? And just took the steps. And then as parents or as any loving adult who might've been walking alongside her in that moment, it was also a teachable moment to say, you know what, what, what would I do in the future? Like if something like that ever made you uncomfortable again, what could have been things you would do differently or in addition to. And so we take even the, the hard, uncomfortable, semi-scary to even dangerous moments, and we turn them into teachable moments as well to say, let's evaluate what was going on and let's evaluate what you can do and what you did really well. And you grow from those things. Um, the same thing with technology. Uh, kids cannot control who are going to pursue them, but they can be wise and knowing that everything they put out there is public, everything they put out there is permanent, um, that it's a facade to think you have privacy in technology world, that there's integrity and moral character, uh, that if I don't start with my children's hearts first and encourage them to live with conviction about good and evil, um, and they're not doing that themselves, um, then they will be capable of producing unsafe things themselves and pursuing unsafe things. But we know that they actively pursue young people online from chat rooms to social media sites to predators, no matter what it is, just helping them think about it, that people are pursuing them even to steal their money or to just get personal information and steal their ID. Like it's just the world we live in to say, hey, just know that you need to be careful what sites you're shopping on because some sites will rip you off. And we would do that very easily with that conversation. Yet we'd hesitate saying, either way, there are people out there that are going to want to exploit you sexually. So I won't have that conversation. But I'd be happy to tell my kids, be careful you go on any other website other than Amazon because you don't know if it's a scam or not. Mm -hmm. Isn't that kind of ironic? The, the conversations we're happy and willing to have and then the other conversations we're afraid to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Linda, I want you to, to jump in, but I did have a follow-up. I mean, just even using the story you just used of, of your daughter, I'm trying to think of kind of after the fact when, when something like that happens, I can only imagine that there's you know a certain level of fear that your daughter would, would feel as she goes back out into public. And so kind of the advice of parents, okay, maybe something has happened, but now we've got to kind of encourage the child to get back out in the world and not retreat, you know, in, in fear and just uh, live in fear of the rest. Of, uh, give us some advice there. But what do we do after something like that? Maybe. Yeah, I, um, and that's usually what I'm doing in counseling is when people end up in counseling with me, it's because something bad has happened. And now we're going back and we're thinking it through and we're using it as a learning opportunity to say, how can you be equipped to not be afraid moving forward? But guess what? Now you know the signs, you know what to look for, or you know what to do if somebody's approaching your car and maybe you would stop because you don't know you have a flat tire, but you're going to keep your window semi rolled up. Um, or Maybe next time, you know, I'm going to pull into 
the next store and get out and go call the police right now and have them find that man. Or I'm going to go in and tell the local business owner, this person just did this, who was the age of my grandfather, yet he was totally inappropriate with me. And I want, I want to equip them to feel competent that, yes, things like this may happen, and I'd be wrong to guarantee they won't. But I want you to know how to handle it in ways that make you feel confident and competent, not afraid. Um, and that's really the key. That's that goes back to the whole uh, the whole idea of I can't shelter my kids, but I can equip them. Mm-hmm. That's helpful, Linda. I'd love for you to jump in. Yeah, I wonder if there would be a lot of people listening who think, you know, gee, like these kinds of conversations have not been happening yet. And my kid is already a teenager or I can, you know, I'm a youth worker and I'm thinking of teens in my ministry that I think that they're just hiding these things from us and from their parents. And they probably are like sending or receiving sex or, you know, going to parties around alcohol and not telling us or whatever it is. And, you know, so I wonder if you could speak some to, um, how can we, um, like, like, what are the things that might make students hide these things from us? And how might we help students to feel okay about being open in these conversations? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's never too late to start the conversation. It might be more work that I have mm-hmm. to do, but it's never too late because kids will want to talk to somebody that feels safe and understands them. So what's the key to getting them to talk? It's, do I get you? And if I'm willing to bring up a topic they're not willing to bring up, what I'm modeling is, oh, guess what? Julie knows these things happen. Julie knows sexting happens or parties happen um, or these things are happening on campus or this is going on in kids' lives. So whether I'm a youth group leader or a parent or a counselor and I'm saying things like, hey, I'm sure kids your age are doing a lot of of pot these days, right? And the kid might be like, yeah, why? Because I'm not asking, are you doing it? I'm saying, do you know kids that are doing this? I'm I'm opening the conversation up in a safe way where kids might not want to self-reveal what's going on in their lives, but they're happy to, to tell on everybody else. They're happy to say, oh yeah, everybody my age does this. And I can say, yeah, well, when that happens, how how do you help your friends? If your friends are struggling with mental health issues or suicide, how do you help them? Or you have a friend who knows they're being cyber bullied or they're they're being groomed by somebody, what advice would you give them? And so I'll start with the, what do you do when your friends are going through these things? What would you say? How would you help them? Um, and then I, I'm modeling that this is a conversation we can have. This is a conversation that we can have as a group that I can have one-on-one with this youth leader. And you're just opening the door that way. Yeah, Julie, something else that you bring up in the book is uh, sleepovers. Um, And I know years ago, Tim Challies, I know, posted on that, and that was a just massive article. Um, And uh, I'd love for you just to kind of speak to this, not only, I mean, I know these are kind of two different things, uh, but similar, but uh, families, you know, hosting sleepovers, but then we know youth workers are tuning into this podcast as well. And so there are retreats and conferences and I work for RYM. We have conferences and, you know, we think about these things, but just give some thoughts on, I mean, one thing I just like your approach on it, that it's not just a hard and fast no, but there's, there's thoughtfulness, there's discernment, there's nuance there. Um, Just give us some thoughts on sleepovers and some, some counsel there. Yeah. Well, you picked one of the hottest topics, right? That people (laughs) will either love me or hate me for when, when I talk about it, because I, I won't draw a hard and fast rule though. You talk to my kids and they'll say, oh yeah, our parents <laughs> never let us go and sleepovers. We were like the, the strict parents. And the irony is there were lots of times where I thought, actually we have made exceptions, but the exceptions made sense. Um, and I give examples in the book, you know, for us, we, our home is our ministry. We are having foster kids coming in. We're having people come in. And if I'm willing to have a, a, a stranger come into my home because of ministry or hospitality, but I won't have one of my kids' friends come in my home because I'm against sleepovers, I'm being a little, I don't know if the word hypocritical is right, but certainly it's confusing to my kids, right? What? You're allowing this strange foster child to come into our home, but you won't allow my friend. And I said, well, 
I can guarantee to whatever degree I can in my home that we have structures in place and safety plans and electronics are put away. And, you know, we have parents who are watching young people. I can't guarantee that another family is going to take the exact same approach, no matter how, and I give examples in the book, you know, no matter how thoughtful or how close we are to them, their ways of evaluating and supervising may be different. So you hear this, well, if you don't allow your kids to go to sleepovers, then it's kind of hypocritical to do sleepovers yourself. And I'll say, well, not really, not if other families are okay with it, or there's reasons to make sense, or we're having family over for the holidays. Like we just have to do life. And my, my goal is wisdom. My goal is safety. My goal is thinking precautions, not let's come up with all these formulas so that bad things never happen. Um, and that's impossible, by the way. We can do everything right and evil still enters in uh, because it's in our own hearts. It's in our own families. And so wisdom says, I raise my kids to the best of my ability. I make thoughtful decisions. Um, and then I trust that the Lord's there working in those moments. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's good. I know we're about at time. Um, I had one more question. Linda, did you have something else you'd like to jump in with? I, I mean, I could ask like a broad question. I don't know if this is an unfair question or not, but um, in terms of like all the different kinds of things that you're addressing in this book, specifically with teens and the safeguards that you would like to see parents equipping them with, like, is there one that you're seeing like the most gaps in, in your work where you're like, man, like this one is being missed the most or anything like that? Well, the, the easiest one to come up with is technology, right? Mm-hmm. It's just parents are not thinking this through well with their young people. They're not being a safeguard in the realm of technology, nor are they teaching their kids to have safeguards. Um, and we know that at that age, they feel, um, you know, the world is their oyster, that they're not in danger and they can handle everything. But they just are ill-equipped and unaware of, of what exists there. And then the second thing that stands out is just teaching our kids to know their own hearts, that our hearts are, are tempted to be drawn in these directions and to guard our own hearts. Yeah, no, that's that's a good word. I mean, technology, it's just, again, we, we've done it plenty of times on this this podcast, but we could just focus on that alone. And um, yeah, grateful that your, your book does talk a, a good bit about a lot of scenarios that are involved with social media and technology. Uh, so pointing people to that. Um, Julie, I know we're, we're about to draw this to a close, but, and Linda stole my question. She sold a lot of my questions, but that's because she's thoughtful. Um, but speaking to youth workers again, as we close out, um, I'd love for you to just, you know, what advice would you give them on how to partner with parents? I mean, it could be specific examples of, you know, just thinking of a youth worker in a local church context, hearing this podcast, reading this book, um, how could they come alongside parents and and partner with them? Yeah, I would love to see youth leaders having workshops for parents or telling parents ahead of time. And and many do this, say ahead of time, we're having this conversation uh, this coming week. uh, We're going to have this conversation about technology or this conversation about online pedophiles or predators. And here's five things that we're going to be sharing with your teen that we'd love for you to install at home. Parents need to be putting up the safeguards for their children. And when they do that, they actually give youth leaders the freedom then to help encourage or convince kids to want to live that way, right? That's how youth leaders really help the family is they're not the ones that have to instill the rules, the parents are, but they are the ones that can instill in kids the desire to see those rules as good, to see those guardrails or those safeguards as good things in their life, not meant to be rigid, not meant to be overprotective, but really to help guard them themselves. And that's a great way youth leaders and parents can can work in cooperation with each other, where youth leaders have the ability to win over kids, where parents are kind of the the ones who have to abide by the rules and and have their kids a little upset with them. Yeah, that's a good word. And as you're saying that, I'm I'm thinking, yeah, for youth workers, I mean, to pick up this book and to, uh, I mean, maybe have kind of like a workshop, you know, of sorts where you're you're hosting the the families and you're using the book as, um, I don't know, little breakout discussions that you're having and kind of working through. I mean, there's so much that's covered in this. And so, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, another way to use this resource. 
Um, Julie, uh, thanks again uh, for the time you've put into this. Thank you for all the, the counseling you're doing with families. Um, and I appreciate you taking the time to, to come on the podcast today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.